If you've got your Bibles, turn them with me to Paul's first letter to Timothy, continuing in chapter 2, where we left off last week in verse 7. We're going to pick up in verse 8 and read to verse 10. That will be the text before us this evening. So let me read that for us, reminding you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. So may we receive it from him as such. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so let's pray together now that he would shine the light of his word upon our darkened hearts. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humbly acknowledge together that you give wisdom. That from your mouth come knowledge and understanding. And so we ask now that you would cause us to receive your words and to treasure up your commandments. By your spirit, make our ears attentive to wisdom and incline our hearts to understanding your word. Lord, we call out for insight and we raise our voices for understanding. By your grace, cause us to seek it like silver and to search for it as for hidden treasures. For then we will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we continue our way through this epistle to Timothy, as he's serving, as Paul has told him to, In the church in Ephesus, I want to remind you once again the reason why Paul is writing to Timothy. He's writing to him because he wants to be there with Timothy. He wants to be there in the Ephesian church, but he's not able to. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, so that you will know how the church ought to publicly worship me, because the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. And he started talking in chapter 2 about how the church ought to pray, the priority of prayer, the necessity of prayer, why we ought to pray. And now tonight, Paul is going to explore a topic that I don't know that we think of very much, that we spend very much time reflecting on. And the topic is how to prepare yourself for public worship. Do you think as you're going through your week, or when Saturday night rolls around maybe, maybe I ought to prepare myself in some way, shape, or form for gathering with God's people to commune with God in a unique and special way and receive grace upon grace as I corporately worship him with his people? Do you think about that often? Well, Paul addresses that here. So we're going to spend some time reflecting on that. And not just sort of generally how to prepare, 
But Paul gets even more specific and says, here's how men ought to prepare for public worship. And here's how women ought to prepare for public worship. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. How to prepare for the public worship of God. And our outline is very simple. I basically just gave it to you. First of all, we're going to look at how men should prepare for public worship. You see that very clearly in verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, secondly, we'll look at how women should prepare for worship. And essentially, negatively what Paul says is, don't come to worship thinking it's about you. Because it's not. It's about God. And so as we hear these commands from our Heavenly Father this evening, I want us to to be amazed at his love and his care for us. Because we weren't created to live our lives pursuing our own interests and making ourselves the ultimate end of all things. That's slavery and bondage. Instead, the Lord has created us to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. And so I pray he gives us ears to hear this admonition and amazes us by the grace that he has shown us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray he uses his word to that end tonight. Let's look first then at how men should prepare for public worship. Look at verse 8 with me again. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, Wherever the church finds itself in public worship, the men ought to pray. You see, it's not like Old Testament worship that had to take place in Jerusalem. Now that we are in the new covenant, as Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 21, people worship in spirit and truth in all sorts of places. And so Paul says, here's what I desire, as I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this to you, that wherever the church gathers, men should pray. Now, that causes us to ask a question. Which men? All the men? Well, remember the context. It's corporate worship. It's public worship. And so, hopefully, all of you were there this morning. Who leads the the prayers? Who prays? The gospel ministers pray. Those whom God has raised up and called to minister Christ to his people through the word And through the sacrament. And you say, why the men? Well, it's because men lead the church, those whom God has called. And it's a, it's a teaching ministry. Praying is not, not ultimately or primarily, but in part, it's your teaching when you're praying. And so any questions that you might have about that, let's reserve them for next week. When we look at verses 11 through 15, which addresses why men are called to be gospel ministers, and they're the ones that ought to pray. So the emphasis here is on gospel ministers, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't secondarily apply to all men, so that we can all prepare ourselves for public worship. And so Paul says they should pray. And he goes on to describe um, what this is going to look like when he says in the last half of verse 8, Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he gives us a command. He says, here's how you're to prepare for public worship. And he gives us how we ought to do that positively. Here's what you ought to do. And then he also gives us commands negatively. What we ought not to do. 
And so let's start with the positive command here. What's the positive command? He says that we should lift holy hands. And we don't have time to do a survey of Scripture, but that kind of language is talking about living a godly or a holy life. Now, in passing, I should probably mention that in the Old Testament, you often see important figures throughout salvation history praying with outlifted hands, with their palms facing up, offering themselves as an offering to the Lord and receiving his blessings as they intercede for the people of God. So there's a little hint, by the way, that posture, while there's not just one posture in prayer, posture matters in prayer, actually. And so Paul is saying, as you're lifting holy hands. Now, this holy hands language is used again and again throughout Scripture to talk about a holy life. Various places we could go to prove that, but think just of Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, who can ascend the mount of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so what Paul is saying here is that gospel ministers, when they're serving in that role, praying and lifting up holy hands, they ought not to, uh, that ought not to be a, a contradiction from how they lived their lives the rest of that week. It ought not to be, oh, now I'm to commune with God. No, this ought to be the climax of a, a whole week of communing with the Lord in family worship, in private worship, and living a life that is consistent with how God has commanded us as Christian men to live. So that it's not some, again, contradiction to how you lived your life the rest of that week. And so Paul says, positively, you ought to come to public worship as a person who's living a holy life. A man that shows up having lived all week in accord with God's law and having communed with him all week long. So that's what he's talking about positively. Then he goes on to say two, two negative things, two negative ways Two things that we ought not to do in order to prepare ourselves for public worship. The first one that he says is that we ought not to be given to anger. Lift up these holy hands in prayer. Don't lift them up in anger. And I think, I think this is just so insightful of Paul, and obviously the Lord knows us perfectly. I think anger is something that men in particular struggle with, isn't it? I'm not saying that women don't struggle with it at all. But as, and this theologically makes sense to me, because men are called to do what? We're called to lead. We're called to protect. We're called to provide. We're called to labor. That's why God created us, put us in the garden to work. And then what happens? We disobey God, and that work now, as a result of the curse that God brings upon mankind for our sin, it's now toil, isn't it? There's thorns. There's thistles. There's frustrations as we're trying to plan, as we're trying to protect, as we're trying to provide. It's not like we make a plan and then it just goes off beautifully. Right, men? <laughs> it's like you're running into frustrations all over the place. So it's easy to get impatient. It's easy to get angry when you're not able to accomplish what you think you ought to be accomplishing. And so Paul says, don't come with anger. Why? Because... As James says in James chapter 1, verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so you ought not to come 
with anger in your heart. Now we might ask the question, who's this anger directed towards? Is he saying don't be angry with other believers? Is he saying don't be angry with unbelievers? Don't be angry with God himself? Well, I think all of those apply. But again, in the immediate context, what Paul seems to be saying is, don't be coming to public worship with anger in your heart towards each other. And again, we can imagine why some anger might be there when you've got false teachers. Right? So the temptation is that you come with anger. And yet, what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 5, 23 and 24? Before you come and offer your sacrifices, be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to him before you come and worship God. And so Paul is saying, this is one of the ways that you prepare for worship. And brothers, the ultimate antidote to to fighting against anger, and again, this applies to all of us, but to the men in particular tonight, is to understand that God is sovereign, he loves you, and he's good, and he's wise. And so when you see your plans being frustrated, do you understand that he is the one who's bringing those frustrations? And then the question becomes, do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to keep working? Not that you trust in your work, but you trust in the God who's sovereign over all. You plan your steps, but ultimately the Lord is the one who causes everything to work out the way that it does. And so do we trust him? That's really the the antidote to not giving over to anger. So Paul says positively, live a holy life, commune with the Lord all week long in order to prepare for public worship. Don't be given to anger. And then thirdly, again, a negative command. He says, don't do this. He says, and not in quarreling. Don't be given to quarreling. Now, again, we ask the question, quarreling with who? Quarreling with other believers? Quarreling with unbelievers? Quarreling with God? All of the above. But again, because of the specific context, quarreling with other believers. And and why do we quarrel? Why do we fight? Why do we stick to our guns and, man, I'm not going to give an inch? Well, James answers that question for us, doesn't he? He says, there are fights and quarrels among you because you want something and you can't get it. So then you fight. So then you quarrel. So now that other person's the enemy because they are now a a, a stumbling block between you and your idol. And by the way, that idol is always you. It's always, I am my favorite idol. You are your favorite idol. And so we fight and we quarrel. And, and James says, you're, you're being idolaters. You're, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. And so you're, you're making the public worship of God about you. Do you see that? That's at heart what, what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't make this about you. That's why you fight. That's why you quarrel. That's why you're angry. That's why you don't live a holy life throughout the rest of the week the way that you ought to. It's because you are turned in on yourself rather than turned towards the Lord in love and towards his people in love as well. And as we reflect on that, brothers, we can't help but feel a little beat up, right? Convicted, rightly so. And so this is why we are so thankful 
for God's provision of grace in his son, aren't we? That in love, the father sent the son to be the perfect man. Who, who is the fulfillment of Psalm 24? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Who is this king of glory? Paul says it's Jesus. And so he's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's the one that lived the perfectly holy life in your place. And that's then credited to you. He never made it about himself. He always did what pleased his father. He never gave himself over to sinful anger. For sure, he was righteously angry. But he never sinned in his anger. And he never fought over petty things. He was always seeking the will of his father. And brothers, you see, he did that for us. He lived for us. He died for us, paying the penalty for all of our sins. And now we have the privilege of daily being progressively sanctified and conformed more and more to his image. And so this is how we are to prepare for worship, communing with him and and not being given to anger, not being given to quarreling, not making it about us, but understanding it's all about the Lord. So now that we've looked at how men should prepare for public worship, let's look secondly at how women should prepare for public worship. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I was almost tempted for the, the sake of time and so I could have more time in application to, to separate verse 8 from verses 9 and 10. But do you see how they go together? I mean, Paul says, men, here's how you prepare for public worship. Likewise, women, here's how you prepare for public worship. Here's how the men in particular ways are tempted to um, to make worship all about themselves, to make life all about themselves. And women, here's a particular way that you are tempted with trying to, to grab attention through your appearance, your clothes, your makeup, your how you appear to the external world. And so Paul says it ought not to be that way. So let's, let's break this down here. First of all, let's start with what is Paul saying negatively here? In other words, Christian women, here's how you prepare for public worship, here's, or here's how you don't prepare for public worship. Here's what you ought not to do. He says what? That you ought not to adorn yourself with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, it's really, really important and helpful in understanding this passage to understand what's happening historically at that time. Because historically, what's happening at that time is that women are are having these elaborate hairdos. I mean, you can go back and look at the coins and various sculptures and descriptions from various historians that are just very, very elaborate. Braided, there's gold woven through them, there's pearls in there, and they are just, they're, they're, they're dressing to the nines. And, and this is such a problem culturally that the Greco-Roman moralist philosophers are saying that is not virtue, that is actually vice. To try to use your appearance to attract the gaze of everybody that you walk by, they were saying that's, 
that's not virtuous. That's vicious. That's, that's wrong. And what Paul is saying is, that's exactly right. I agree with them. It ought not to be that way. You ought not to be trying to distract others. And again, remember the context. They're doing this in public worship. And so Paul says it ought not to be that way. So let's look then at what Paul is, is commanding here. What, what is he actually saying, here's what, what I'm commanding you to do? First of all, he's saying don't be ostentatious. He's saying don't approach public worship as an opportunity to draw attention to yourself. Again, just like the men are trying to make it about them in public worship, here's how the women are doing that through the way that they appear. And so if we could put it into today's terms, if I can, you know, translate things culturally a little bit here for you. He's saying don't approach public worship as a red carpet event. Right? I mean, because what are designers are designing things for people to wear and you're trying to make it outlandish and look this way and that way. So the news grabs it and it's in the news and everybody's looking at it on all the social media sites. He says that is not what we are here to do. We're not here for you to get attention to yourself. We are here to worship God. We're not here to join you in the worship of yourself. And so the first thing he's saying is he's commanding them, don't be ostentatious. Right? So, so we'll get to what it doesn't mean in a second. But second of all, he says, don't be immodest. Don't be immodest. That's what he's telling them here. And this is, this is very timely, isn't it, for us? Especially, I mean, obviously for, for the women. You are constantly hit with a barrage uh, through social media, if you participate in that, through television, through movies, through conversations with other women, through the example of other women that you know, that this is what you ought to look like. This is what you ought to wear. This is what makeup you should use. This is the jewelry that you should... All of these messages just bombarding you. And, and often, again, it's not only ostentatious, it's immodest. Showing more skin than should be showed. Showing curves that, that shouldn't be shown. Unless you have a husband, show them to him, by all means. But not all the rest of us. We don't need to see that. And so Paul is saying, be modest, don't be immodest, and don't take your cues from the world. Brothers and sisters, I guarantee you we're going to be one of those top cultures that's remembered that has power and significance, and we are going to be remembered as being terribly immodest. Top ten, guarantee it. We'll see after Jesus comes back. But So the point is, don't take your cues from the world. Don't take your, your clothing tips from the world. Now, what is Paul not commanding here? Right? Because we can misapply this. You can, you can, you can screw this up in, in one of two ways, ladies. You can either say, I don't really care about what the Lord says. I'm just going to disregard that. I'm not really concerned about most of you doing that. The other extreme is you latch onto this and you start to apply it in really weird, strange ways. So let me help you not do that as well. Paul is not saying that you can't look beautiful. That's not what he's saying here. It's not saying that you shouldn't take care of yourself. He's not saying that, that our bodies don't matter and our appearance doesn't matter. We're not Gnostics. We're, we're not longing for the day when we can be disembodied souls. No. Your body matters, and, and take care of it, and, and there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. He's also not saying, and this is really important because it seems to be saying this, he's also not saying that you can't braid your hair. 
All right, some of you are like, oh good, I don't have to take my braid out right now. That's not the point of this passage. Again, remember how it's historically situated. The women that were, were doing this, it was very ostentatious um, to, to wear your hair in this way when the normal hairstyle for most of that time period was very plain. And if you had a wild hairstyle, you'd often cover it you know, with something. I'm not saying you ought to do that either. I'm just saying the point that he's making is the women who were showing off their hair that way were not virtuous. They were, they were filled with vice, and they were often, often prostitutes. And so Paul's saying don't follow them in that. But he's not saying you can't braid your hair or wear gold, right? You don't have to take your necklace, your gold necklace off right now, or your pearls, or even expensive clothing. That, that's not the point. Go back to, again, he's saying don't be ostentatious, don't be immodest. Next, he's not saying <laughs> that you should try and find odd clothing, or do your hair in really noticeably, like, culturally weird ways. Be, that you're not trying to look drab on purpose and different on purpose. Because guess what? Now you're just going the, the other way. You're, you're being ostentatious. You may be modest. But now you're being ostentatious in, in the opposite direction. Right? And so that, that, that's not the point either. Um, you're still making it about you. Instead, what he's saying is is you, you ought to be modest and you ought to not be ostentatious. Don't be immodest, don't be ostentatious, and don't misapply it and think you just got to look weird so that you can be different from the culture. So now that we've looked at how Paul instructed the women negatively in, in regards to how they should prepare for public worship, let's get to what's more important at what Paul says positively. Here's how you should prepare for public worship. Notice he says... Uh, in verse 9, that women should prepare for public worship by adorning themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Now, the question here is, is he being metaphorical and saying you should have respectable apparel and that respectable apparel are these virtues? Or is he saying that you should have this kind of clothing? And here's my answer to that. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think he's saying, this is what your clothing should look like, and, and th- these are also the virtues that, that you should have. And so notice, again, he, he's not saying that your outward appearance doesn't matter. And he's not saying that you should come to church looking slouchy and unkempt, like that's somehow virtuous. He says our apparel should be respectable. It should be modest. Your clothing should should manifest your self-control. In other words, your clothing can actually put on display, in part, your your virtue, your character in the ways that God is changing you. Showing that you have self-control because you're not trying to use your clothing or makeup or hair or whatever in an out-of-control way trying to get attention from other people. I think that that is, in part, what he's saying here. And so he's, he's not saying that outer beauty doesn't matter. Instead, what he's saying is that the world gets outer beauty wrong. True beauty is not what the world says it is with its excess and its immodesty and impropriety. No, here's true outer beauty, clothing that reflects self-control and respectability. That's true beauty externally. Now, I should say this. That may show up in a variety of different styles and tastes. We're not going to come out with a uniform for sovereign grace that the God that God's like stamped and said, here's how you're supposed to dress. 
it'll, it'll show up in a variety of ways. But each one, ladies, will be marked by modesty and self-control and respectability. Now, Paul takes this even, even to the deeper level in verse 10 and says, Here, here's what true feminine beauty is. He says in verse 10, but with what is proper for women. This is how you are to adorn yourself. With, uh, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. He says that the ultimate way that Christian women are beautified by the Holy Spirit, it isn't in their outer trappings, whatever those may be, but with good works. The ways that the Holy Spirit is conforming you to the image of Christ. That's your true apparel. That's that's true beauty. It's, it's not your hair or your makeup or your jewelry or your clothing, but what matters even more is your character and how that character shows up in how you live your life. That's what is fitting for women who profess godliness. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. <laughs> it's also fitting for women who profess faith to be rich. I'm sorry, for men, not women, both, to be rich in good works, right? It's not just exclusive for men. But in the immediate context here, again, he's applying it to Christian women so that they understand that the great work that God is doing in beautifying them is not ultimately in regards to their outer beauty, which is fleeting, which always fades, but their inner beauty, which grows from one degree of glory to the next until that great day when they're perfected in Christ. And so that's where the emphasis should be, character and how that character then manifests itself in good works. So what is Paul essentially saying there? He's saying, sisters, you shouldn't ultimately be known for the clothes that you wear or the hairstyle that you have or the makeup that you wear, or anything like that. You should be known, ultimately, as a godly woman. As a woman who serves her family, who serves her church, who loves God, her Savior. And you should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit is working in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the exact same concept that Peter gets at, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, where he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So do you see what God is saying through the pen of Paul, through the pen of Peter? True beauty, true femininity isn't ultimately about the external things that our culture idolizes and seems to elevate and says, whatever you have to sacrifice to accomplish that, that's your goal, ladies. It's cruel. It's bondage. It's slavery. But rather, it's about the beautification that God brings about in a woman by his grace. So that her character looks more and more, not like the world's, but like like Christ's. Because charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, having said that, women of sovereign grace, I I hope you don't feel beat up by that. Because I want to stand up here and, and commend you. I believe as a church, you women embody this so well by God's grace. 
And I, and I commend you for it. Husbands, commend your wives for it. It is an evidence of God's work in them. And, and as, as an elder, as a gospel minister in this church, I thank you for it. I praise God for it. As the father of a three-year-old daughter, I'm thankful to know she's not only learning from the example of her mother, who's a godly woman, but from all of you. She gets to see all those different styles and, and tastes, right? Because not everybody shares my wife's style and taste and, and, and vice versa, right? It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, all right, well, but Jason, you don't understand how I struggle with those things in my heart. You may not see it externally on a Sunday morning, but you, you have no idea the internal struggles that I go through, the, the internal ugliness within me. And sisters, I, I believe you. And God knows that perfectly. And I'm sure your husband is, and your friends within the church, your fellow sisters, are, are, are familiar with those unique struggles that you have. But again, just as we brothers looked to Christ, sisters, you have the privilege of looking at Christ as well and rejoicing that he lived the perfectly beautiful, virtuous life that you have failed to. And he did that in your place so that as you stand before the Father, as he interacts with you, he sees you as perfectly beautiful in Christ. And he is sanctifying you. He is sanctifying you so that you are being beautified inside and that manifests itself externally in good works and in the way that you present yourself until that great day when that work will be finished and you will be perfectly beautified. And and how are we in Revelation, Mikey read from the end of all things in the book of Revelation where the church is presented as a decked out beautiful bride ready for her bridegroom Christ, has come back. Until that great day, sisters. And so don't despair. He's at work in you. We can see it. And he will complete that work. He who began it will complete it. So brothers and sisters, I hope you see, isn't this so incredibly kind of our Heavenly Father? To to care for us so practically. To say, men, here's how you can prepare for public worship. Women, here's how you can prepare for public worship. I'm aware of your unique struggles. Don't make it about you because that's the way that leads to death. Make it about me. Repent. Live a holy life. Let that show up in how you interact with others. And know, again, as I already addressed men and women, now all of us, he is perfecting us from one degree of glory to the next. He is preparing us for that great day when he will come back and we will worship him perfectly forever and there'll be no more need for preparation. And we look forward to that day. May you come quickly, Lord Jesus, so that we can enjoy that. Amen.